Wonderful stuff, thank you. The, um, the 40 acts that we're doing are going to be really exciting. So it's obviously 40 days of Lent, which is private uh, in a sense because it's a, a personal devotional that you can follow through with activities every day, various grades of difficulty. Most are really, really simple, really quick, and that's the daily one that you get to sign up to. And as James was saying, starting next week, we're doing practical activities, uh, including the first one, a litter pick, community clear-ups. So that's next Sunday after church, and then they just go on after that week after week. So as James has been saying, it's great to get into that. Wonderful. Um, we're doing a short series, and I'm preaching today on a topic I don't think I've ever preached on on a Sunday morning. And, and there's a reason for that. It's because I often, pre- I've occasionally preached on this sort of topic on a Saturday early afternoon. Um, but I'm preaching it on a Sunday morning for the first time, I think. And uh, I'm a little bit nervous because I'm aware that these, this, I'm going to touch issues that are huge. I'm aware that some of these topics make people feel uncomfortable. I've got no desire to make anyone uncomfortable, which is why I've never preached this on a Sunday. Uh, but actually, I believe God's given me a word that's really encouraging and helpful and uplifting and equipping today. A bit more teaching than preaching. Um, so if you've got a notebook, you might like to grab that. Um, but we're going to be looking at... For a few sessions, uh, I'm, I'm just the, the, the kind of slightly uncomfortable topic is all done this week, so you don't have to worry about next week. Um, but just for a few sessions, we're, we're asking, looking at some questions where God does things slightly differently to us. Have you ever wondered if perhaps you're looking at things the wrong way around? If perhaps uh, when you look at life, uh, you've got it all upside down, because that seems to be the situation when Jesus walks into people's worlds, he he, he turns their viewpoint upside down and shakes it around a bit and goes, there you go, that's the way you should look at the world. And everyone goes, oh, right, okay. And so just to help us with this kind of thing that I think we're looking at things upside down sometimes in how we view the world, we're going to look at some uh, slightly unusual title. Um, we're going to look at what happens when God does maths. Now you're looking slightly baffled. Um, but I was trying to think, how do we convey this thought? Because I think... We treat maths as it's the most secure thing we've got in terms of our thinking process because you can disagree on art and you can disagree on English and you can disagree on politics occasionally. <laughs> you can disagree on all sorts of things. Um, but maths is fairly set, isn't it? We're gonna, we know the basic sums. And so today we're going to be looking at uh, a really complicated sum. That's what I want to be talking about today. So if you've got a t- if you're writing down a title for today's message, that's it. One plus one equals... Now, I'm not going to ask for the answer yet because some of you are ahead of me and you've worked this one out, okay? But I want to just suggest that perhaps God looks at things in a slightly different way to us. There is a reason why we're doing all this and the whole point is that our thinking can be a little out of whack sometimes and I think God wants to come and shake us up a little bit today. I've never preached on a Sunday morning about marriage, but today I'm going to. I've never preached on a Sunday morning about not being married or being divorced or being widowed, um, but I'm going to today. And I think it's something important that we need to look at because the Bible says a lot about these things. And I want to look at one particular passage and see how it occurs several times and why that's so significant for us today. Just a bit of a warning. As we come to the Bible and we come to looking at hum- how it, what it talks about human relationships, human relationships are messy. 
And we mess them up, and the Bible's full of people who've messed up their relationships. And so a lot of what we read is people writing into messed up situations and messed up lives and trying to bring something of God's truth into the reality of day-to-day life that's a bit messy. And uh, I believe today we're going to see something that's really positive and helpful and uplifting as we challenge some thinking and help us see what God is saying to us today. To get to that, we want to go right back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. And uh, I'm not going to read the whole of Genesis 1. It starts in the beginning, God created, and it, if you've never read it, it's a good overview of the, one of the themes of creation, which is that God made everything. He's the creator. He's the one who's in charge. He's the one who creates, not, not us. Uh, the world wasn't created by the sun God or anybody else. It's created by God, and everything is set in its place. And uh, towards the end of that story in Genesis 1, we read these words. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image, in the image of God He created them. Male and female, he created them. Great passage. And it ends with this this line, male and female, he created them. This is the first of the two perspectives on creation that we get in Genesis 1 and 2. This is the very first one. This one's setting out the order of the days and, and this kind of sense of God being overall and God putting things in their rightful place. And then God makes people, man and woman, human beings, mankind, to be like him, to bear his image, to represent him in the world. It means that, that when people, uh, when the, crea- the rest of creation looks at human beings, they're meant to see something of God, that every time you see a person, you're meant to see something of the divine. That's the idea that we're representing God by our very existence, by who we are, by how we're made, by who we're made by. And then he goes on from there to say this. Then God, it goes on from there to say, Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. This, this commission, if, if you like, is given to mankind to rule and to reign over the whole of creation. And we've done that with varying degrees of success over the years. Sometimes seemingly reasonably well and sometimes pretty badly, uh, but we've done it it, with varying degrees of success over that time. Fill the earth and govern it. Be fruitful and multiply. A great command and a great commission that God gives to to people right at the beginning of this book uh, of Genesis. And we see that men and women, male and female, are equally commissioned. They're commissioned together as humankind, as people. This is all the people of the earth, all two of them at this point. Uh, being commissioned to go and fill the earth and to be fruitful and to multiply. And then, a little bit after this story, I haven't got the text on the screen, God looks at creation, including humanity, and says, it is good, it's very good. And then he rests. So the pinnacle of creation isn't actually man and woman. The pinnacle of creation is God (laughs) resting. That's the end point of the story that, that we get to, that God has finished his amazing creation, man and woman, commissioned to, to 
uh, be fruitful and multiply, commission to reign and govern over the earth together, and then God rests. And that's the kind of wrapping up of that part of the creation story. And it's all good. You come into chapter 2 and you get a slightly different account. It's like you're looking at the same story but from a different perspective and, and things are rearranged slightly and there's a different purpose. That's because Genesis 2 is writing to make a different point. Genesis 1 is writing to make one point. Genesis 2 is writing to make a different point. And the point is around the relationships between people, man and woman, and man and woman and the rest of creation, and man and woman and God, and how they relate together. And we see that in Genesis chapter 2, that it actually picks up the story in a slightly different place. We read this, verse 7 of chapter 2, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. So Genesis 1, we've got order of creation uh, going the right way through to animals being created, then people being created, commissioned. Genesis chapter 2, we get man being created, um, and then God breathes into him, and then he creates, he's going to create in a moment, woman from man. That's what's going to happen in Genesis chapter 2. So slightly different order, looking at things from a different perspective. And, and Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we, uh, the story goes on from there that t- as, as we read that man is placed in a garden. And the rest of creation is, seems to be slightly chaotic, but there's this wonderful garden that God's made, um, and, and he's planted it there, and he's put man in there, and he's going to send them out in a minute to, kind of to make this garden good and to manage the garden and to, to rule over the rest of the earth in a bit. But we, at the moment, in Genesis 2, we've got this garden, and God's put man there. And we read in this story that God knows something that man doesn't know. That as we read in this story in Genesis chapter 2, it's a wonderful place. This, this Garden of Eden is, is amazing. Uh, and God gives it, uh, this man a command to eat only of, uh, to, to not eat of one particular tree, but he can eat of all the others. Uh, and God knows that man is alone. And I don't think that man's realized this at this point. The Lord God says in verse 18, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. That's a crucial verse linking to what we've heard about the commission to man and woman. The helper, one who helps, an enabler, is another term for it. It's a a word that means helper. It's a word that when someone's going, help, the person who arrives is the one who helps. And so it's used in the Old Testament to speak at times of a king calling another king to come and rescue and help and enable when he's in a battle and, and he's losing. You go, help, and the person who comes is your helper. And so God's recognized that actually man is alone uh, and not in a sense of he's all alone, there's nobody here beside me. It's not that kind of alone. But he's alone in the sense that he can't fulfill the commission that God's just given. He's he's going to give this commission to fill the earth and multiply and and fill the earth and subdue it and rule and reign over it and, and man's on his own. He's not going to be doing a whole lot of filling or multiplying because there's only him. And God recognizes this and knows this already because he created him and man doesn't realize it yet. And so what God does, it says that he, he brings forth from the ground animals and the birds of the sky and he makes them and brings them to man to see what he's going to call them. And as they're coming past the man, he chooses names for each one. And we get this sense that, 
God knows exactly what he's doing, but man doesn't. And he's, he's sort of naming these animals one after another, after another, after another. And it's like the lights are slowly coming on. And he's going, these are great. These are amazing. You, know, you imagine he's got a giraffe in front of him. He's going, oh, what shall I call this one? I don't know how he comes up with the name, the equivalent of giraffe, but he comes up with a name. And you can just imagine all these animals coming past. But slowly the realization is dawning that there's nothing that looks like him. I'm imagining groups or pairs of these other animals walking past. I don't know what it says, but that's, I don't quite know if there were pairs or groups or family clusters, but, but there's nothing quite like him. And he begins to realize that he's on his own, something that God already knows. And then the Bible says that the Lord caused man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he's sleeping, the man takes one of his ribs or part of his side, is probably a better translation, out and closes up the opening. And then God makes fashions a woman from the part of man's side or his rib that he took out. And then we read these key words. The Lord took out the, the, one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed. You get that sense of, oh, finally, we've gone through every possible species of insects and everything else, and finally, there's one who looks a bit like me. This one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. And then I've underlined a bit that we're going to look out for later. This explains, explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Bone from bone, flesh from flesh, recognition, shared identity, likeness. They're different but the same. They're not the same, but they're, but they're made of the same stuff. And, and man is going, look, there's one like me. We're, we're the same in, in essence, unlike anything else which is different. I heard somebody very recently speaking on this, and, and they wanted to make a particular point. Uh, and they were saying about man having a feminine, not having a feminine side because God had taken it out when he made woman. I'm like, men, you don't have a feminine side because it's all come out. And like, that's not really the point of this passage. I don't want to decry another preacher because I can say things that someone else might, might look at. But the whole point isn't difference in this passage. That, you can find that elsewhere. I'm not going to decry difference between men and women. We are different. But this passage is, is about identity and sameness and Adam or man going, look, there's one like me. We're together. Bone of bone and flesh of flesh. There's something connected. And then we get an explanation in the text. It's not God speaking or... Man speaking, but the writer explaining why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. And so our sum is one plus one equals one. Because you get the two united into one person. That's what God's doing when, when a couple are getting married. See, it doesn't work mathematically unless you've got some math geniuses here who can know. No, that's fine. I can prove that. Because I can't get that to work as a sum, but God can. Where one plus one equals one. It's an important passage. It's an important theme, and Jesus emphasizes exactly the same teaching. We find him in Genesis, uh, Genesis in Matthew chapter 19. And here Jesus has healed some folk, and he's teaching, and, uh, and a group of religious leaders called the Pharisees have come up to try and trick him. And if you've got your Bible open, 
uh, with you on an app or, or maybe a real Bible in front of you, uh, do bring a Bible to church somehow if you can. It's good to be able to follow along in the, in the text as we're preaching and reading. You can get a great version of app called YouVersion on your phone, which will really help you. You can find out all sorts of scriptures on there, different translations. Um, it will give you a Bible reading for the day. It's a great app, and it's free. Um, and we, the other Bible apps are available, um, and we don't get anything for promoting it. Um, but Matthew chapter 90, we read this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee. Went down to the region of Judea, large crowds followed him. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. This is the question Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for any reason? Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for any reason? Now, we've just read about God putting two people together to make one person. Jesus, in response to that, says these words up on the screen. Haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus said? They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he, and he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Since they're no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. He's using the same passage. And, and what we don't realize necessarily reading this today is that the, the Pharisees have come to trap Jesus. Because by this stage, it's no doubt that marriage is a hard work, that these relationships of becoming one is hard and difficult and and people have known for thousands of years at this point that actually sometimes marriages break down and they're asking because there's different opinions about what you do when a marriage is struggling. Just a little while after Jesus' teaching, there are There's by then the teaching of three Jewish rabbis. When Jesus is teaching, there's probably only the teaching of two with particular different theories on this. But I'll give you the three. Three different schools of thought. Rabbis Hillel, Shammai, and Akiva. And they all base their thinking on on one passage in Deuteronomy which talks about how if a woman becomes seemingly distasteful to her husband... That's the, kind of this, this word. He, he's allowed to write her a certificate of divorce and divorce her. And this is kind of word, and they're scratching their head going, what does that mean? And one of the rabbis, his school of teaching, says actually it's, it's quite strict. It's around marital unfaithfulness. So if, if there's a, adultery, if this woman becomes unfaithful, then the marriage can be split apart because in, in essence she's already split it apart. So, so you can recognize a divorce that's in a sense already happened. Another rabbinical school, this is the school of Hillel, decides that anything, if this woman does anything displeasurable, this, this disgraceful thing, the husband can divorce her. And, and he decides that that's, well, anything at all, really. So in a fairly kind of what we would view a traditional culture, uh, women are likely to do more of the food preparation. And he teaches that if your dinner is burnt, that's justifiable grounds to, for a divorce. which for those of us that are slightly dodgy cooks and our, those who live with us are very gracious in, in kind of taking our burnt offerings, we'd, we'd have been finished a long time ago. I cooked dinner last night for Judith and apologized three times while we were eating it because bits were of different temperatures than they should have been. But we're, we're still here today. 72 hours, they reckon, don't they, for food poisoning is the, uh, is the, is the window. So you never know. Tomorrow it could be a different story. But, but today we're all right. She's very gracious to me. The third rabbinical school, Akiva, 
decides to take it even further and decides that if the husband finds someone more attractive or prettier, that would then render his wife distasteful to him. Therefore, he can also enact a divorce on, this, on those grounds. And so this is the scenario that Jesus is kind of it's foisted upon him and he's answering this question, which is a really loaded question. And he's taken them back, not to answer their question, as Jesus almost never answers anybody's question, but he takes them back to the original scripture. And he says, look, God has made, he's made them male and female. And he's joined them together as one. He's made them united. So I'm not going to answer your question about what, which rabbi is right and which one's not, but I'm going to give you a sum, if you like, and remind you of what God has done. And sometimes in our thinking, we, we think that marriage is like this. We think that it's me joining to somebody else and we become something more than we were before. And actually, I keep my identity exactly as I was and they keep their identity exactly as they were and I don't need to change and they don't need to change and we'll just kind of forge a partnership. Maybe it's just marriage is just a piece of paper. Maybe that's what it is. And we join together and, well, it'll be fun, won't it? And we've got something more than we had before. And that's not the sum that God says marriage is about. But equally, nor is it like this. Well, you're limping along as half a person, desperately hoping you find that you're other half. And we use this language, don't you? Don't we? So this language is the language of couple. So I was single, now I'm couple. I don't, it's not quite right somehow. I've got no better words, by the way, so carry on using that, but I've got no better words for it. But this is sort of that other thinking where we talk about my other half. Like I'm half and they're half and together we make one. And if we split up, I'm, I'm not big anyway, so there's less of me then. I mean, and we understand that, that broken marriages, it's painful and it's, it is like this splitting apart that God's talking about. It, 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 it's awful to, to go through, but it, it's not two half people making a whole. When we're counseling people about getting married and preparing for, for marriage, we encourage people that they're, you know, not, not to see their future partner as someone who can complete them. You need to be okay. Not hoping that they're desperately going to fix you, because they're not. What's actually going to happen is it's going to get worse. It, it is a plus, but it's kind of like the multiply sign, really, because one times one equals one, and, and half times a half doesn't equal one. It equals less than that. And it's like you're actually making the whole thing worse somehow if you've got that situation. But Jesus doesn't just talk about marriage and say, look, it's like one person joining one person and becoming one. He he goes on from there. Because the, the, the Pharisees aren't happy with that description. And they say, well, well, why then does Moses say that a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? They actually say, why does Moses command us to write a certificate of divorce? And Jesus reminds them that Moses permitted this as a concession to their hard hearts. That it wasn't what God had originally attended. And he goes on to talk ab about... Um, divorce and says, well, actually, unless it's been adultery, you, you can't just get a, a kind of dispose of your marriage partner and remarry at will. It doesn't work like that because you've been joined together. And the disciples hearing this, hearing this kind of reminder that it's serious stuff, say this. Then the disciples said to him, if this is the case, it's better not to marry. Look, if, if we're going to be stuck with this person, it's better not to start. If there's no sort of easy opt-out, if Medina's burnt, or, or if actually there's someone who comes along who I prefer, then, then what do I do? 
Now, I don't believe that any of the disciples are planning to get divorced, but they're just saying, look, this is serious stuff. Now, Jesus does something very interesting here because he goes on to talk about those who aren't married. And I want to pick up on that thought in this passage here. This is immediately the verse next next to this. He says, not everyone can accept this statement. Only those whom God helps. This is unusual to us today, but you have to understand the context, and we'll get into this quickly. Some are born as eunuchs, some have been made eunuchs by others, and some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone who accepts this, sorry, let anyone accept this who can. So what happens if you're unmarried? What what does that mean? What does that, how do you fit into all of God's plans? Well, the, the answer is that God's got a plan for all of us. And not based on marriage. Uh, but I just want to go into what Jesus said really quickly. You see, this is unusual. This passage he's talking about, this, this kind of illustration he's giving here. Uh, we don't talk about people being eunuchs today. This would have been castrated men. Um, uh, he's saying some are born like that, maybe intersex, maybe that's the issue he's talking about. Uh, some have been made like that by others, and he's referring to court officials who were often chosen uh, to, to serve in particular areas of the court and uh, would have been castrated as part of that, either having all their genitals removed or just the, the parts that made them kind of reproductive and made that possible. And uh, they, they, that's why they could then be trusted. They were despised by wider society, but trusted to be in places where they weren't going to get anybody pregnant and weren't going to cause too much trouble. Uh, so that's the situation there. This is quite widespread in the time. And then, so that's the kind of context that he's talking about here. But I want to just take us back quickly to the Old Testament. See, in Old Testament, marriage was your identity, particularly for women. Remember the stories of Ruth or Esther. Remember these stories where uh, the whole story of Ruth is the unfailing of this love story where Uh, She becomes uh, looked after, if you like, by Boaz. And this incredible story, or Esther, this story of being married into the king's palace. But in the New Testament, that shifts, and a woman or a man's identity is not through their marriage partner, but their identities as a follower of Jesus. And so there's this big shift that takes place into uh, culturally and societally because of Christ and what he does. In the Old Testament, your lineage and your heritage and your ancestry matters. So the Jewish people would trace their generations from one to the next to the next to the next back as far as they could back to Abraham. In the New Testament, you you take your generations back to Jesus because now I'm a child of the king. And Jesus is my brother. He's my Lord. We were singing about that earlier. So I, I don't have to trace it back through all these generations. My parents uh, kind of gave birth to me and raised me, and I'm grateful. But I don't trace my spiritual lineage through them. I trace it back through Christ now because I'm a child of his. In the Old Testament, the, the commission in Genesis was to fill the earth and subdue it and rule and reign over it. And so it mattered if you had kids or not. And so we get this whole theme of childlessness and it being a really big issue up until Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mum. 
And then we get to a New Testament paradigm as Jesus arrives. And then the commission isn't about having physical kids. And really, you've only got a real part to play in God's call if you've had kids. We get to the New Testament and Jesus gives us a new commission, which is to go and make disciples. And then we all have a part to play. Whether you have kids or not, it's irrelevant. Not They're not irrelevant. They're important if you've got them. Um, don't wipe them off. But if you haven't, you've got a part to play just as much as everybody else because the commission isn't to be childbearing in terms of physical prodigy. The, the, the commission is to be childbearing in terms of making disciples of Christ. Bless you. And so we're called to make disciples. We're called together, all of us, to fulfill the new commission that God gives Jesus is talking here about those who are unable to reproduce. Some are born that way. Some are made that way. And some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom. Notice how positive and affirming that is. This is a for the sake of the kingdom. There's something better. There's something even better than investing in, in, in what I can do with this, this life. I'm actually going to give my life to serving the king. Now, actually, that should be the attitude of everybody, not only those who aren't married. It should be everybody's attitude to serve the king of kings as part of this new commission. In Jesus' kingdom, we're commissioned whether we're married or unmarried, widowed or divorced. All of us are commissioned to bring and take the kingdom of God. I was reading through just preparing for this word, and forgive me if I'm, I'm kind of rushing a little bit. It's, it's, I realize there's so much here, and it's, it's, it's been sitting with me for quite a long time. And I just was reminded that this word, eunuch, is a really unusual word, but it crops up again in Acts chapter 8. And who is it that's the first non-naturalized Jewish convert to Christianity? I know we get Cornelius in the next couple of chapters later, who's an out-and-out Gentile. But who is it's the first one into the kingdom? It's the Ethiopian eunuch. And there's a man sitting on a chariot going away from Jerusalem. And he's one of these court officials, made a eunuch by others, serving in the court. That's profoundly significant. That the, one of the first people to say yes to Jesus and be added into the people of God from outside uh, the, the born Jews is the Ethiopian eunuch who's, who's welcomed in and who's now accepted. He's no longer outside in the Old Testament covenant he would have been outside of the temple wouldn't have been able to take part because of what had been done to him and now in 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 christianity through christ he's welcomed in he's part of the commissioned people sent out to take the good news radical shift radical transformation finally to wrap up a little bit it's not my final point this is my final point but i'm not concluding so don't get carried away paul writes this to talk about to emphasize this point um as he's writing about his own state, I wish that everyone was single just as I am. Yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. So I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am. Now he writes something slightly different to a different church at a different time. So if you'd like to get married, there's nothing wrong with that desire and there's nothing wrong with acting on that um, as long as it's someone that God wants to put you with. Uh, but actually to these people in Corinth, he's writing this at this time and saying, look, it's better just to stay as I am. So we know that Jesus wasn't married and it, <coughs> Paul certainly at this point isn't married. Uh, and there are key, other key people in the New Testament that we're left wondering, were they married or not? Uh, some powerful people who, who no partners mentioned for them in the culture that would have been quite unusual. Lydia and Nympha and Mark's mum 
in the book of Acts, all of whom had a significant role in the church and no husbands mentioned. And that's quite unusual in that culture. But in Jesus' kingdom, our belonging doesn't, isn't determined by our marital state. Being married or unmarried does not define who we are before Jesus. It doesn't define our belonging. It doesn't define our place in the community. It doesn't define our Christian growth. It doesn't define our discipleship. It doesn't define our gifting. And one day we'll stand before Jesus and we won't be standing as couples. We'll stand before him as his children. It's not married section, single section. We're standing before him as his. And that's huge. The Bible does go on to talk about how to be married. And Paul, the same chap who's just talked about being as he is, goes on to talk about what it means to be married. And I, I want to just highlight a passage that's often read because I think it's profoundly significant. Because this is the last time that one plus one equals one is used that I could think of as I was doing my quick survey through. Paul talking about relationships, talks about submitting. Wives, one to another, then goes on to talk about wives to husbands, husbands loving wives, the relationship between parents and children, the relationships between masters and slaves. And this is the passage we read. And one thing always stands out to us when we read this. It's the word submit. It's a thing that sort of smacks us around the face when we read this, because it's not a word that we like to use. He, re- he writes, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, submit to your husbands. I'm I'm jumping because of time. Husbands, head of the wife, his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He's the savior of the body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. And so it goes on to talk about the work that God does, or Jesus does to the church and the work he's still doing. Later on it says this, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. And so it goes on through. This incredible passage about submission and sacrifice. Submission and sacrifice. And we look at that and sometimes we read it and we try and find a way out of it because it seems like the language seems unusual and yet it shouldn't surprise us. Didn't Jesus talk about greater love having no man than this that he lays down his life for his friends? Doesn't Jesus talk about leadership around a meal where they were later around the sort of scene of a meal where they were later to go on and have communion together and Jesus washes his disciples' feet and talks about leadership and that being the greatest example of leadership. And if you want to lead, this is how you do it, by getting on your knees and washing each other's feet. Why should it be such a shock to us that Paul's writing about submission and sacrifice as markers of marriage? And yet, I think it's because we've still got this maths of one plus one equals two that, that nothing about me needs to change, and yet everything needs to change in some way as we come to be joined to somebody else. It's not unusual teaching to be humble and to take the lowest place that runs throughout the whole of the New Testament. And if those values are shocking, it shows how far from the kingdom we've come. But Paul does something particularly interesting. He, he goes on, as I said, to talk about parents and children and masters and slaves. But in this, pic, in this passage, and only in this passage, out of those three, he talks about the husband being the head of the wife and then talks about this relationship of head and body. And 
there's a whole load of academics who've looked at this word head and what it means. And some are pushing for one particular view around it meaning authority. And others are reacting to that and, and pushing for another particular view that it means the, the, the source of something, like the head of the river, that there's a connection. And, and in some of Paul's passages, it does seem to be like this. And in, in, in others, like the one in 1 Corinthians, it seems to be like this. But when it comes to this one, I humbly suggest that much more learned people have, have missed the point. I, I don't have their skills. I don't have tried to read the books. I've tried to do the learning, but it, some of it's beyond me. But I think the key and the answer is of what this kind of headship bit is, is in the next bit, right at the bottom of this passage. Because actually, once again, we read this verse, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. And you know, Paul, it, it can't be just about authority because Paul doesn't talk about the parent being the head of the child or the master being the head of the slave. He doesn't use that language. He's making a different point here. And it's not just about this source and connected thing. I think Paul's talking about the fundamental unity of this and this. You chop your head from your body, you don't live long. I'm not a doctor, but I understand that. Is that fair? A couple of doctors around, <laughs> is that fair? Just checking for an affirmation, yeah? Okay, I'm getting a nod. Slightly quizzical look, so I may not be quite right, but just I'm going to go with that. Chop your head from your body, you don't live long. And... and Paul's writing to talk about the fundamental unity that's going on here between husbands and wives and this mutual relationship which glorifies Christ. All, all of our relationships have to glorify Christ. Children and parents, they, they, they're acting out of reverence for Christ. Masters and slaves, they're also acting out of reverence for Christ. But in this particular one, there's this particular picture of head and body joined together. And submission and sacrifice linked together as one plus one becomes one. And it's the only way to make a marriage work. Paul's showing us that if you want to know how to be married, think about Jesus and the church. And he's pointing away from our selfishness and away from our own tendencies to a much higher perspective and saying, look, there's a better model and a better way of doing things. Why does he use those words, submission? And why does he talk about sacrifice? I think it goes back to a verse from Genesis again. From Genesis 3.16, after there's been this terrible fall and there begins to be a brokenness in relationship. And this is part of the, the, the words that are spoken to the woman. And you'll desire to control your husband, but he'll rule over you. And we've got Paul recognizing and tackling both of these issues that actually successful marriage relationships are about submission and sacrifice not about desiring to control and ruling over. It's not about taking authority or seizing authority. It's about serving and loving within the positions that God has given, within the framework that he gives for marriage. None of that's easy. Today, if you're married, it's not easy. Today, if you're not married and would like to be, it's not easy. My encouragement today is to serve God with the whole of your life to serve God with all that you have, to lay down your life again and to say, Jesus, I give you everything. Whatever my marital state, whatever the state of my relationships, I want to commit my heart to you. And if I'm in a marriage relationship, I want to choose to submit or sacrifice and to love as honoring you. If I'm not in a marriage relationship, I bow the knee again and say, God, I choose to live all my relationships honoring you and to serve and sacrifice. Whatever situation I have in life, we lift up the name of Jesus. We're called to belong to a family. 
We're called and commissioned to go and to make disciples. We're called and commissioned, all of us, to live our lives for the King of Kings. If you happen to be married, the sum is one plus one equals one. If you're not, you don't lose your identity because you're not in a marriage relationship. Do you know what? You're still one. No more, no less than someone who's married, than that, those people that are married. They're one, you're one, it's all okay before God. So I'd like to close in prayer. I'd like to just to, to pray as we've been looking at this concept. I know it's a bit more of a teaching theme uh, today. And there's a lot there that we could have gone off into several different weeks and I've crammed it all into one session. But I just pray that that lands with you and stays that in our relationships and in our hearts, we're not trying to take a higher place, but we're trying to take the place that Jesus wants us to have as we love and we serve and we honor the, honor the King. Just, just close your eyes for a moment. And I'm aware that these topics can be painful. I'm aware that as I even mention the word marriage, I can open up a whole can of worms for people and I don't want to do that today. But I hope you've been encouraged. Lord, I thank you that you loved us enough to come and set us free. And you loved us enough to come and give us life and hope and meaning. And you loved us enough to call us to be part of your kingdom, to be part of serving you. And Lord, we thank you for the Old Testament call. We thank you for that Genesis call to fill the earth, to multiply, to subdue. And I thank you that in essence that continues. We're called with a global call. But I thank you, Lord, that that's been transformed and changed. Uh, And we're recommissioned to go and make disciples for you. We're recommissioned to go into all the world and make a difference day by day. Not just by having children, uh, Lord, because that would limit the call to just some. But we're called, all of us, to be fruitful by making disciples. We're called to love and to serve and to give and to go. And I pray that every single one of us today would grab hold of a sense of that commission that none of us would think we're excluded. Lord, I pray for those who um, are in marriages which are profoundly difficult and are challenging day by day. And it's hard to be that one plus one equals one. And it doesn't always feel like there's unity. Lord, I want to pray your peace and your strength and your blessing. I pray for anyone who's in that situation and it's hard to bow the knee again. And they're saying, I don't know if I've got the strength. I don't know if I've got the energy. It didn't work last time. I'm feeling vulnerable. God, I pray for strength and courage and resource again that people would lift their eyes and look to you and see you and your love for the church as a model of how to live. Lord, for those who are not married and would desperately like to be, Lord, I pray that there would be a new sense of your revelation to them of of what can happen in the meantime. Lord, of what can happen today and tomorrow as they live for you, as they they bow the knee to you and serve you and live for your kingdom. Lord, I pray for those who who have experienced divorce and we pray, uh, Lord, that there would be healing. We pray pray there'd be restoration. We've read of that splitting apart and where where that rips in our very hearts. I pray, Lord, that each person has experienced that would find your peace and your healing and reconciliation with you if there's any that's needed. Lord, we want all of our relationships to honor you. We want to live for the King and glorify you as we serve you. Amen.